beauty and skincare is always a hot topic around here, and today I want to tell you about a new product line I've discovered that I think you will like, Exponent Beauty. Listeners of the show will receive 20% off their purchase. More details on that in a minute. Exponent Beauty is a skincare brand with a line of activated anti-aging serums that are clinically proven to reduce fine lines and wrinkles. The beauty of Exponent Beauty is their innovative form factor. The powders are activated with a quadruple hyaluronic acid serum in their patented precision-dosed dispenser. The packaging is gorgeous, and the dispenser itself is refillable, so it has also reduced plastic waste. Exponent Beauty's line of serums can be found in med spas and spas and dermatologists' office around the country. The line is dermatologist-recommended and clinically proven to reduce those fine lines and wrinkles, and to increase brightness and radiance, and to firm skin without irritation. No more expired or underutilized products with Exponent Beauty, just high-quality skincare with ingredients that work. Go to ExponentBeauty.com and use code TELL20 for 20% off a purchase of $100 or more. That's Exponent, E-X-P-O-N-E-N-T, Beauty, B-E-A-U-T-Y.com and use code TELL20, T-E-L-L, the numbers two zero for 20% off your purchase of $100 or more. Bookworms, I have some great news for you. I'm opening up my Secret Stuff membership to people who just want to join for the book club. The Secret Stuff membership has lots of episodes and goodies, including ad-free episodes of 10 Things to Tell You. But I also know that some of y'all don't need or want all of that. You just want the book club. So starting now, you can join Secret Stuff for just $3 a month to get our monthly book club Zoom meetings, which we always record and turn into a podcast episode replay in case you can't make it live. In October, the Secret Stuff book club is reading the nonfiction book Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma by Claire Dieterer, which explores the personal conflict of loving art, music, novels, movies, that are created by people who are problematic, to say the least. And in November, we're reading the 1984 novel The Unbearable Lightness of Being by Milan Kundera, considered a modern classic. The purpose of the Secret Stuff Book Club is to read the books that you want to read, but maybe need a little nudge to do so, like the buzzy nonfiction books that we read this fall or the classics that we always read in the winter, the types of books that are even better when read as a group. To join the Secret Stuff Book Club, go to lauratremaine.com slash secretstuff. $3 a month for some of the best literary conversations I've ever had. I'm Laura Tremaine, and I have 10 things to tell you. And you have 10 things to tell. This show is about connection with each other and with ourselves. And the hope is that the things we talk about here will be fuel for better conversations and a personal awareness. Each episode has a prompt or a topic that I want you to take to your journal, text to a friend, or share on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. This is a show about digging deeper and sharing our stuff. I'll go first. Even though back in the Hollywood Housewife days, my original blog of your... I would have characterized myself as a mommy blogger. And of course, my kids are some of the best parts of my life. But I have been vocal about the fact that I tend to shy away from talking about parenting publicly. 
for lots of reasons, either here on the podcast or on social media. There's just a lot of other topics that I'd rather discuss. I think parenting is complicated and very individual, which, of course, it makes it very funny to me that we have had on more than one guest lately to discuss parenting. It seems as though maybe this topic is finding me. Today's guest is Dr. Morgan Cutlip, a highly sought-after relationship expert who knows what it feels like to lose yourself in motherhood, and she's determined to help mothers navigate it better. Throughout her career, she has helped hundreds of thousands of people worldwide learn how to form and maintain healthy relationships. Dr. Morgan Cutlip has been a featured relationship expert with Good Morning America, Teen Vogue, The New York Times, Women's Health Magazine, Mops International, Loveology, and Flow, the number one app in health and fitness. Her new book, Love Your Kids Without Losing Yourself, is out now. Dr. Morgan and I, in this episode, we talk about motherhood as an identity, the dangers of viewing your kids as an extension of your parenting skill, and the mental load of parenting that so often falls more heavily on women. We also discuss how that affects our mood, our partnerships, our sex drive. I even share a real-life example of this dynamic that is happening in my home right now as we speak. This conversation was so thought-provoking and encouraging, and I really think that you will enjoy what Dr. Morgan Cutlip has to say. Dr. Morgan Cutlip, welcome to 10 Things to Tell You. Thank you so much for having me. It's so great to be here. I'm so glad that you're here, even though we're going to talk about a topic that I don't normally talk about on this show. (laughs) And I say that because I keep saying I don't talk about it. And then I actually have been talking about it this fall more than usual. And I think it's a reflection of where I am in my life. So we're going to talk a little bit about parenthood, partnership, motherhood, mental load, These are not topics that I usually cover for all kinds of reasons, but I have a 13-year-old and an 11-year-old right now, Mm -hmm. and I find myself wanting to talk more about parenthood at this stage than I did when they were babies. Like when everybody's talking about it and, you know, figuring it out, I did not want to talk (laughs) about it or take in you know, I feel like because it it muddied the waters, but now that my kids are a little older, I I do want to talk about it. Isn't that a funny phenomenon? That is funny, but I feel like, you know, there are different seasons of parenthood where each of one of us sort of has a different experience in those seasons. So like baby period of time and toddlerhood was really challenging for me. And as our kids are getting older, I feel like, okay, I'm in my wheelhouse. Like now I can use my skill sets where I felt like they were lost on my kids before. So I think each and every one of us sort of has that time and space in in our parenting journey where it's like, okay, now I really need to talk about this. I I agree with that because the baby toddler years were really hard for me. I've talked about my anxiety during that time, every trigger I had for my lifelong anxiety actually was ticked in the early years of parenthood because, you know, lack of sleep, inadequacy, you know, all the the things that like brought a lot of fear, hormones, like all the things that contribute to some of my mental health stuff was so hard in those baby years that I, it was just like nose to the grindstone. Like I just wanted to like do the work. I didn't want to overanalyze it. I didn't want to talk about it. But sort Mm -hmm. of like what you just said, now that my kids are a little bit older and I do feel like I'm a better mom now, I do feel like I'm able to use 
my natural skills. I love talking to my kids as they're getting older, and I feel more confident in my parenting than I did mm-hmm. when they were babies. That I feel more comfortable being like, okay, I I want to talk about some of these aspects of this season of life mm-hmm. that's not totally steeped in, like I said, fear or mm-hmm. desperation. I feel like a little bit more expansive about my parenthood journey. And so when I was going through the videos that you post, the tips that you post, all of these things, I just felt so much relief in the way that you talk about being a parent and being a woman, being a mom. And so I wanted to have you on the show because you have a new (laughs) book that is launching into the world. It is called Love Your Kids Without Losing Yourself, Five Steps to Banish Guilt and Beat Burnout When You Already Have Too Much to Do. Congratulations on that. Thank you. I appreciate that so much and that you, you know, get that experience from consuming my content that makes me feel really happy. And I think, you know, what you're saying, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're sort of saying in those early years, you were so cloaked in feelings of inadequacy and anxiety that it was almost too much to talk about it. And, you know, I don't think you're alone in that experience. I think that so many women feel that, like those chronic feelings of falling short in their motherhood experience, especially early on. And I mean, some feel it all the way through, but I do think that we're sort of coming up now in a this generation of parents where we're starting to give more of a voice to that feeling of inadequacy, that feeling of falling short, that chronic guilt, that anxiety that we're like, we can imagine a million ways harm can come to our children that we just never anticipated this experience in parenthood. And so uh, I'm hoping that my book just normalizes some of those feelings that I think moms can feel really isolated and lonely in when they're having them. Well, and one of the things that you talk about is self-worth. Are you finding your self-worth in your parenthood, in your in your kiddos? And when I read that, that immediately resonated with me because when people talk about like losing your identity in parenthood and stuff, I feel like I fought really hard for a long time to not do that. I was so scared of losing my identity because that's like what moms have talked about for a long time mm-hmm. that I was like, I will not be the person to lose my identity. And I, you know, kept my own hobbies and I always worked. And I like, you know, I did all these things to really fight against that. And then when my kids were past the diaper stage, let's say maybe, I don't know, five and three or something, I kind of started to realize like, oh, but I actually like the piece of my identity that's a mom. Mm -hmm. Like I'm going to stop fighting against this. Like I'm not just a mom. Like I'm like, oh, I actually want to add mom to to my introduction of myself because I'm I, I really like who that is about myself and I'm really proud of that and have come through these hard years and really feel like I've been very intentional about about my parenthood. And so this identity piece, I mean, this is a little bit semantics, except that it's not. The identity piece I feel like I had a little bit of a hold of right? Mm -hmm. Then when I read what you wrote about self-worth, I was like, oh, that hit in the gut because that wasn't about identity. That was like, I do struggle sometimes with finding my worth in my kids of like, if they're doing Mm -hmm. great, I'm 
must be doing something right, or I'm a favored person if they're doing well. <laughs> Even though I, I'm saying it out loud and I'm almost embarrassed to say that because I know I know that's not true. But I do feel like sort of spiritually almost, it's really hard to untangle. I guess the, the, the difference between identity and self-worth in the way that I'm describing it is identity is sort of the shallow level, the surface level, the like how I introduce myself or something. Mm-hmm. The worth part of it is so much deeper mm-hmm. and is way harder for me to untangle. So do you want to <laughs> try to tangle that for me? <laughs> I'm no, like, for sure. ooh, okay. <laughs> So I hear of like I hear different things. Like I know my brain is going in like a million directions listening to you. I'm like, ooh, how do I want to respond to this one? One thing that I really like that you're saying that I think echoes to some some things that I talk about in my book is I hear you saying is that early on in motherhood, I was like really determined to dig my feet in and be like, I am, you know, I am Laura. I am not mom. You know, I will hold on to this. And I think that that shifted for you over time. And you're like, no, I'm okay to like let that guard down, let some more of my mom identity seep into me. I love this part of me. And she sort of kind of opened up parts of you to let that sort of integrate. And what I love about this is that the way that we become moms, the way that we create our identity around what it means to be a mom, a woman, a partner, all these different sort of identities that we have is really an individual's journey. It looks different for everyone. And part of how we make sense of it is by knowing ourselves really well, is by tuning into ourselves and checking in. How's this working for me? Okay, this isn't working anymore to be so resistant to my motherhood identity. This isn't fit. That's not actually aligned with my values anymore and what brings my life meaning and is important to me. And so I can make these shifts. And that's what I'm hearing you say you did, which is that you reflected, you knew yourself, and you made these shifts. And that's a big part of my book, which is these regular self-check-ins mm-hmm. where we tune into us, we do a, a, an assessment sort of of where we're at, and then we make these small adjustments. And so I think that's a really powerful story that you shared of how you did that. Now, the self-worth piece, it's a, something that can be really helpful, but it's something that can really get in the way for us as moms which is that a lot of us have this tether between our kids' behaviors, their outcome, and and what they do that tethers to like our worth or performance as a mom. Mm -hmm. If they're doing well, it means we're doing a good job. Now, that's the positive side. If they're doing well, you're like, yeah, good for me. (laughs) I'm doing a good job. But if they're not, and especially think of these early years, you know, with toddlers and tantrums. And if we say that every time my kid has a tantrum, it's a direct result of my failure as as a mother, then we are going to regularly be beating ourselves up talking to ourselves really critically, and it's going to dramatically affect our Mm self-worth. And when you look at the research on the millennial generation and how we're parenting, we have really moved parenting to the the center and core of our identity. We've actually moved partnering kind of where it's like, eh, that's a that's a bonus if we have a good relationship or if we even have one at all. It's become way less important, but we've been really focused on this idea of, you know, doing things differently for our children than we experience. So ch- changing this generational pattern of things. Mm-hmm. And what the outcome is, is that we've really, our identity is really tied up in our children. Mm-hmm. And I think that this 
can be dangerous for how moms talk to themselves, feel about themselves if everything is so directly linked. And so, of course, we have an impact on our children. Of course, you know, our mothering matters. It's not that there's no connection at all, but sometimes we do need to separate the two a little bit so that we can show up for our kids in the ways that we need so we can keep our calm in those moments that are really stormy and things like that because this this harm to our self-worth can really get in the way of that. And some of it is out of our control that we take on as worth that isn't ours to carry. So an example I'm thinking of is we all have some genetic stuff. <laughs> we all yes. pass along some of our wonderful traits and some of our not so wonderful traits to our children. Yes. And when you see it, I'm laughing, even though I know this can be very deep and, and and sad and hard. But when you see it sometimes, like, you know, I have had, I had a lot of anxiety as a child and one of my children has some childhood anxiety. And I feel myself like apologizing mm -hmm. for this thing that I wouldn't have chosen it for me or for the kid. Mm -hmm. And so to carry it as part of my worth, like, does not help me be a better mother. Like the opposite, you know what I mean? It, it fills me with like guilt or shame or like I said, apologies uh, that is is unhelpful, kind of gets in the way, like mm -hmm. you were saying, of of the good parts. Yeah, because we, we become really like self-focused. Yes. I think that's the piece I'm trying to articulate here is that when we tether our worth to our child's outcomes or their situation, we become all about, or us really, very self-focused. It becomes very personal to us. And then we're so caught up in our own shame and our own worry that we can't be there in the ways that we need. I cannot count I mean, so many times early on in our daughter's life, her name's Effie. She's 10 now, but she just had these epic tantrums. I, I really thought that I was going to parent in a way that I would just like, you know, come up to her, you know, what's going on? We'd talk it through. I'd use my therapy skills and we would, you know, we'd like skip off into the sunset holding hands. And that was not how it ever looked. You know, I'd name her feelings. She'd come at me like trying to bite me. I mean, it was just... So absolutely wild. And it took me a while to get there. But for so much of the time, and I think part of it, just our life circumstances, we were living with my parents. So I often had an audience. And I think this is true oh. for a lot of parents when these things happen in public. When you have an audience, you immediately go to a, a very self-focused place, which is, Oof, I'm not doing, people are going to think I'm not doing enough. People are going to think I'm not a good parent. People are going to think I don't know what I'm doing. They're going to think I have a horribly behaved child and it's all my fault. And when we're in this self-focused place, you can't remain calm for your kid in those moments. You can't respond from a place of real empathy for what they're going through. It's, it's this panicked, anxious place. And it really does create just a lot more hardship in our parenting experience. Hold on. I think that that is so interesting the having an audience piece. And this can this can look different for a lot of people if you live with parents or in-laws, if you feel that your partner might be the audience, mm -hmm. if you feel like social media might be the audience. You know, I was like a mom blogger for a long time. Mm -hmm. I actually call myself that even though I didn't write about parenthood as discussed. <laughs> I barely wrote about parenthood, but it, it was kind of a phase where everybody was calling themselves mommy bloggers. And you can feel like, you know, there's a 
a nameless, faceless audience. Mm -hmm. That's sort of how our brains have trained ourselves a little bit with the internet. And but then there can also be a literal audience. Like if you're in public, like you said, if you're, you know, in front of other moms at school or whatever, that is such an interesting piece of how that might affect the way that we parent, because I'm sure that it did with you. Absolutely, it did. I mean, it and, and gosh, especially when you have people weighing in with suggestions when so many of us do. And I think, too, there is this virtual audience that has a big impact on parenting in today's culture, which mm-hmm. is that maybe you're in the privacy of your home and nobody's actually watching the tantrum go down or that hard moment with a teenager or whatever it might be. Nobody's actually watching it go down. But if you then pick up your phone and you head to social media and you follow any of the bazillion experts that are on that space – very well-intentioned, a lot of really great advice, but you can get to a place where this advice feels um, like just an opportunity to see how much you're falling short, all that you're not doing, how Mm -hmm. you didn't phrase whatever you said to your child in that moment, you didn't phrase it the right way, and now you've messed them up forever. And so I think there is like there's different levels of audience. There's the in the moment, there's the grocery store, maybe at the park and the playground, Um, but there is this sort of virtual space, this information overload age that we're living in that provides a lot of opportunity for us to regularly compare ourselves to what we believe to be right. And we're not going to get it perfectly. And I think this can lead to us feeling like we're falling short so much of the time. And I also like what you said about the type of parent you thought you would be Mm -hmm. versus the type of parent that, that we are. Mm -hmm. And it's so much easier to parent theoretically. (laughs) It's, oh my gosh. <laughs> I thought it was going to be the modern day Mary Poppins. I was like, I was convinced I was top 100 mom for sure. I would, and I, I was like, I got the makings. Why not? But it, yeah, it smacked me upside the head. I could not, I could not have prepared myself. I don't know for, for that loss of freedom that I felt after becoming a mom. I don't know if you felt that one too. That was really shocking to me. It's not every day that you find a product that you truly love and want to shout about from the rooftops. Well, friends, I have found something that I am genuinely excited to share with you today, and that is Born Shoes. Born Shoes are made with the best top quality leather with functional stitching and flexibility. They are lightweight, but they're also supportive. They are great for all casual occasions, extremely comfortable, and especially good for travel. The brand recently gifted me a pair of the Ithaca style sandals. Of course, they are beautiful. The footbed has extra foam for added comfort and with a slight heel for lift. I am positive that I could walk all over London in this pair of shoes, just like I did in my Born sandals last summer. Born Shoes offers sandals, flats, boots, and heels in several styles and color choices. Take comfort in Born Shoes. Every season, they make high-quality shoes that feel as good as they look. With artistic touches, unparalleled craftsmanship, and exquisite materials, Born designs shoes to satisfy the demands of every lifestyle. Go to bornshoes.com for a 15% discount plus free ground shipping on all full-price shoes when you use my promo code TELL. That's Born, B-O-R-N, Shoes, S-H-O-E-S, dot com and use promo code TELL, T-E-L-L, for 15% off and free shipping, available exclusively to our listeners for a limited time. With sunshine, outdoor activities, and so many fun things to do outside, it is impossible not to enjoy all of these good weather days up ahead. Of course, we all know that more sun and fun means more sweating, and yes, more odor. 
That's why I'm excited to tell you about Lumi. Lumi is the first of its kind in the full body deodorant world and is seriously safe to use on any and every part of your body. It was created by an OBGYN who saw firsthand how regular body odor was being misdiagnosed and mistreated. I especially love that Lumi deodorant is baking soda and paraben free. It is also pH balanced for safe use on all areas of your body. You can choose from a variety of fresh scents like clean tangerine, lavender sage, and toasted coconut. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice, like a mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code U at lumideodorant.com. That equates to 40% off your starter pack when you visit Lumi, L-U-M-E, deodorant, D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T, Dot com and use code U, Y-O-U. In your career, is that when you started talking about parenthood and, mm-hmm. or, or were you, was that always your path? I meant to ask you this at the beginning and yet here we are. It's fine. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> I'll tell you my story. So I don't know if you know, I've actually worked alongside my dad for a really long time. So my dad was a pastor and then he went back to school to get his doctorate in psychology when I was in grade school. And I would go to classes with him. I would pack a fake doctor kit full of candy and markers and paper and I'd take notes and I'd hang out. And then he started a practice and eventually he started writing educational courses for people in their relationships. He started with singles and then couples. And I would go around with him when he would present these workshops. I'd like run the money because that was the fun part, you know, when you're younger. And then eventually I, I started speaking with him. And then I realized, you know, obviously I I need my own credentials if I'm going to work alongside him in this space. And so I got my own degrees because I had plans of things that I wanted to do. And when I was maybe a sophomore in college, I said to him, you know, someday I want to do something for women because, you know, you've got your career. Like I need my space and this is what I want to carve out for me. And I didn't know what that looked like. I thought originally it'd be around dating actually. And Fast forward to Effie being born and, you know, I said it smacked me upside the head. I, I thought I was really prepared. I thought I would be really excellent at it and I felt so buried. I felt so lost, so overwhelmed. Resentment creeped up toward my husband that I was not accustomed to mm-hmm. and just all of these massive shifts in my life that I just really felt shocked by and I knew. I knew at that time, you know, I, I don't have the answers but – I do have the skill sets. And so someday when this fog lifts, I want to use my skill sets, which is taking psychological theory and research and making it practical. Mm-hmm. I want to use these skill sets to help to help moms navigate this time and all of motherhood, the trajectory of motherhood from a more empowered stance. And so that's how I got into, into this space. Well, I think that pivots perfectly to what I was going to ask you about when you said that maybe you had some resentment against your partner. <laughs> I just mean, a just a bit. I mean, how unrelatable is that? No, that's so <laughs> relatable because, uh, because, because mm-hmm. all the reasons. But I do want to talk about that, actually, the partner piece of this, mm-hmm. the mental load piece of this the sexual sex Mm -hmm. part of this, which I know is something else you talk about. And I was like, well, we definitely need to talk about that piece of it. So let's start with, let's start with mental load, because I think that that is a little bit what pings into the resentment. There's a lot of reasons that 
there can feel like an imbalance when you become a parent, especially in the baby years when the children are literally, in some cases, attached to you mm-hmm. and the, the resentment builds up, the imbalance might build up. And then as especially as they get older, I feel like once you're past the newborn stage, the mental load is mm-hmm. overwhelming. To it's me, hard. the mental load has been much harder. I get more buried. I like that you use that word buried in that than I did than I did in the actual tasks. Yeah, I believe that. So, okay, I'll start by just defining it just in case people don't know what the mental load is. So it, it goes by different names. So mental load, invisible labor, invisible load, these types of things. And it's essentially the running to-do list that <laughs> I always get a few rogue male followers who are like, I carry the mental load. How dare you? (laughs) Give me credit. And so research says that it's usually carried by women. There are some men who there's different, you know, role reversals and things like that. But it's an invisible running to-do list that's usually carried by women that have some key features. So one of the key features is that it's largely invisible. This is really challenging. It's why it makes it really challenging because when you finally understand what the mental load is and you're ready to talk to your partner about it and kind of renegotiate how things look, it's hard to explain it because Mm -hmm. so much of it is invisible. It's like, have you noticed how we always have toilet paper? Have you noticed how when our kid was struggling, I made arrangements for them to do X, Y, or Z? Have you noticed that I researched the safest body wash or, you know, whatever? It's it's all of these really invisible things that can become hard to explain to our partners. And then when we start to like list them off, a lot of times the responses are, okay, you know, that seems kind of silly. Um, you know, this is make a list, make a list and work through it. And so it becomes really frustrating to have the conversation around it. The second defining feature is that it takes up cognitive real estate. Mm -hmm. So the mental load, because it's invisible and we're carrying it in our minds, it crowds out lots of things. It drains our energy regularly during the day. It can crowd out things like our sexual desire. That's a really big one. I think more partners need to like understand that aspect of the mental load. But yeah, it takes up a lot of space and it wears us out. Can I just bust in to give an yeah, ex- of course. a lifetime example that's happening in my household right now as we record this? So we have house guests coming this weekend mm-hmm. and it's my husband's family. And so I have an, uh, you know, I have an involved partner. He's a very active parent. He's thoughtful, like he's smart, all the things. But our mental load is so radically imbalanced and always has been. Part of it's a personality type that I do think is is somewhat, like falls along gender lines. But like, no, here's the example I want to give just because I think people will relate. So his family's coming (laughs) to town this weekend. We are pretty good about being like, your family, you're in charge sort of thing. Yes. You know, like yes. you need to plan the things or whatever. We're, we're, we both do that. He's willing to do that. Except that he, <laughs> this is what mental load is, you guys. He doesn't think about <laughs> the next like 72 hours and I can't stop thinking about it. So in his mind, he makes some very basic arrangements, you know, like some dinner reservations or, you know, I mean, just some real basic things. And then, and then he stops. Mm-hmm. He doesn't think about, well, there's you know, nine of us. So we can't all fit in one car. So are we going to take two cars? And then how are we going to handle the parking? And then we also have to get our daughter to volleyball. 
somehow during the dinner. So how is that? Like, he doesn't think, and if I bring that up to him, like, have you decided how we're going to logistically do X, Y, and Z or whatever during this time when your family is here? The mental load to him is like, oh, we'll just like, we'll figure it out. No, I'm serious. I'm serious. And he's like, we'll figure oh, it out. No. Like in the moment, we'll figure it out. And I'm like, like well, you're going to get another car in the moment. I'm like, what do you mean? We're going to, I don't understand what you're saying. Maybe you should let him figure it out. I have. And in some cases that works, but like when you have house guests and stuff and you're like, well, I'm not going to like subject yes, them our to my- guests to like you know, either an argument or a very messy logistical situation or whatever. Like we sort of need to have figured out some things. I mean, and it's also like the same thing. I'm just going to continue on the same example because it's happening in real time that I'm like, okay, well, I'm getting groceries, you know, what kind of things do they like? To does, eat? Do they like, or do they, are they allergic or what? I mean, you know, it's his family. So I know some of that, but it's just like, he doesn't think about any of the mental load things. And this isn't like, a knock on my sweet husband. This is, I'm using this example so that people can sort of understand like that women are often constantly worrying on all the things that need to happen for, for two days of house guests. And I don't think the partners are thinking about it like that. They're like, oh, cool. Family's coming fun. Yes. Yeah. Isn't it nice that the sheets are clean and the beds are made and the food is stocked? Oh, all the things. All the so that even with I'm sorry I'm really harping on this point, but because I feel like that even progressive feminist women like myself who's like, oh no, mm-hmm. we're like balanced, like it's his family, he's, he's in charge. It. And then I'm listing all the ways in which he's not in charge at all. Like I'm doing all the things. That's it's hard. This is a very challenging issue in relationships. Like I think you're just highlighting that point is that it becomes very tricky. And I mean, even if you were to say to him, let's talk through all of the things, you know, before your parents come or, or even if you just said to him, actually, I'm really worried about some stuff about when your family comes, he might be like, what? And then you have to and then you having to list it all. And this is a pushback sometimes I get because I'm a big proponent of you got to talk about the the mental load really regularly because it's always changing. Just like, you know, it's increasing right now because you have family visiting. People will say it's a- it adds more to my mental load to even explain it. Yes. Oh, I'm so it, glad you yeah. said that because yeah. I'm like, it's just easier for me to take care to of it. To just do it. Yes. Right. But then when we just take care of it, we perpetuate being the owners of it. And so it just it, – it, I, I think the mental load is um, – it's a long ball game in terms of regularly kind of like making some adjustments, tweaking, having sometimes it requires that first initial really big conversation for a lot of couples, um, but it doesn't usually change right overnight, mm-hmm. uh, but it's a process, but it's, it's hard. It's hard to just, uh, seriously, I got to lay this all out for you. But then otherwise you, you do continue to be sort of like the manager or CEO of the home and they're an employee versus you both being equally responsible for thinking about some of these things. So it's, it's, it's like the number one thing I hear about from women in my community too. Well, I mean, you said it, so I'm just going to follow the thread, how it affects our intimate connection. Please do speak to that. Sure. (laughs) I'll let you take that. You're like, here you go. Um, No, I'm happy to talk about this one. I, so 
it's it's our largest sex organ is our brain and we don't really think about sex in that way we don't really think you know we think about you know other parts of our bodies as as what really leads to pleasure and desire but really it's our brain and our ability to get in a good headspace for a sexual relationship so can can I do like a desire 101? Yes. Okay. Okay. Please. All right. So the way sexual desire works, it used to be called sex drive. And we've kind of been, you know, new research is like, that's not really the tech, right? Technical term. So when I say desire, if you still think of drive, that's what I'm talking about. But the way that it works is that it's a, it's a dual control model of sexual response, which means in simple terms, the best way I've heard it described is actually from this, this book. And she describes it as an accelerator and a break. So our desire has an accelerator and a brake. So there are certain things that hit our accelerator and turn us on. Then we have things that hit our brake and turn us off. We all have different sensitivities of each. So if you imagine a continuum of each, you know, if you have a really sensitive accelerator, like a, a breeze might turn you on, okay? But also if you have a really sensitive brake, that means just smelling something kind of yucky can turn you off. Does that make sense? Is this from burnout? No. It's from Come As You Are, same author. Yes. yes. Okay. Yes. It's so from Come As You Are. Yes. yes. I mean, this is the, – the actual research behind how our desire works is not hers, but the way she describes it, the brakes and accelerators. And it's so great. Her name's Emily Nagowski, and it's the simplest way I've heard it explained. Mm -hmm. So what we need to understand is that in terms of, of being in the mood, you want to maximize – hitting the accelerator and you really want to minimize taking your foot off the brake because the brake can shut down the accelerator. The mental load hits the brake. Yes. The mental load is like a foot, like a brick on the brake. And so that's how we need to think about this is it's taking up, it's taking up brain space where we can't get in a sexy state of mind. It's crowding out anything that's hitting the accelerator and it is slamming the foot down on the brake, shutting down our desire. When you get into bed at night and you're like, I didn't do this. I got to do that. I got to look up that. I forgot to send an email, da, 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 da. all these things going on in your mind. You are not thinking about being romantic with your partner and intimate with your partner in that moment. And so if there were ever a great motivation for partners to really participate more in this, maybe that does it for them. But it's such an important factor in terms of desire. Okay, but then what do you do? <laughs> I, please. I mean, because it's hard for me to turn off the mental load piece. And then if you are trying to – I saw you talked about this a little bit on your Instagram, which everybody go follow Morgan online. She offers such great things. But – I saw that you talked about like if you not let them fail, cause that's that's such a negative light. Mm -hmm. But when you you know if you are trying to let them take on their mm -hmm. fair share of the task and they don't really complete it to mm -hmm. your standards or like objectively they don't actually do the thing, and so then it still continues to feel imbalanced. And so then it's, it feels like two sides of the same coin. You're either resentful because you're doing everything. Or you're resentful because you tried to balance it out and it, and it didn't work. Mm -hmm. So all the breaks are still being hit but for me when that <laughs> right. happens. Right. Because resent, resentment will hit the breaks yeah. as well. Okay. So when I, I mean, this is a big conversation, but when I think about the mental load, I believe that there are different ways of coming at it. So I divide it up into the between and the within. 
So the between is tackling the mental load in the relationship between you and your partner, that conversation, that dynamic. And then the other is the within. And I hear you sort of talking about both of these. So the within is stuff that as an individual, what can I do differently to maybe shift the mental load? Or what am I doing perhaps to perpetuate it or to not not help my partner take things over. I'm kind of souring the tone in this area. Mm-hmm. And so I'll give a, f- a couple of those examples. So some of the ways that we might sabotage handing off the mental load as an individual are doing things like this, personalizing stuff. This is really common. So for example, my husband, I feel like he's heard me say this, so it's not happening as much anymore, but he leaves his socks all over the house. And I don't really care, but but a lot of people would personalize that. They would see the socks and they would say, you know, he thinks I'm his maid. He just expects me to pick him up. Like he doesn't care Mm. about how hard I work to keep the house clean, which then sours our attitude toward our partner, creates a more kind of hostile uh, vibe or environment, which just isn't conducive to like having these conversations can Mm -hmm. also lead to resentment a lot faster. So we have personal control over how we make meaning of some of these things. So that's one little piece. Another is uh, impatience. This is one I see we were sort of talking about it. Um, We might ask our partner to do something. If they don't do it right away, we just take care of it. Uh, This perpetuates it belonging to us. The third is micromanaging where you're like, can you do this? But do it like this, not like that, 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 which sort of shuts down their desire to really want to do it. Criticism, you, hey, can you get the kids dressed? Oh my gosh, what did you put them in? You know, where it's like, Gosh, I can't do it right. Why do I even try? It's Hold on. Of- I've done all of these. Are we- <laughs> I'm just shaming you. I mean, no, we've all done these. We've, we've all, done, all these. done these. Yes, I've it's- done. Y'all know that I love to play games on my phone to unwind, and I am always looking for a new one to download. And I recently ran across Two Dots, and I want to tell you about it. Two Dots is a free-to-download, puzzle-based game that involves connecting dots through relaxing puzzles while unlocking levels and collecting prizes along the way. There are different gameplay modes to make the experience unique and exciting with every single puzzle. There are over 5,000 distinct puzzles with various power-ups and special dots ready to earn as you move through the levels. The in-app music and visually stimulating interface provide a soothing experience when you just want to relax and unwind. Not only is Two Dots free to download, but it can also be played without internet connection. So playing on the go offline is a breeze. And if you don't want to play alone, you can challenge your friends on Facebook as well as connect with the larger Two Dots community for even more engagement. If you're looking for the perfect game to help you relax but also keep you engaged, download Two Dots for free on Android and iOS. Really hard not to, actually. Like, I I have to really bite my tongue. Now, again, my kids are older, so a little bit less. But when they were younger with the, like, what are they wearing sort of situation. I've had to – because I knew that that, that criticizing the way that he did it was not an effective way to get him to do it again, right? So so I would have to really be like, "Mm." Mm, (laughs) mmm. Thank you. (laughs) They – Yeah. I can't believe they look homeless and they're going to school. Yeah, I know. I know. It's not easy. I'm so – I'm not saying these are easy things, but they're just things to, to raise our awareness to. The last one's keeping score, which is like, you know, our partner finally does something and we're like, 
drop in the bucket, my friend. You know, we're like, still, it doesn't really matter in the way that, you know, we convey that message that it doesn't really matter. It's not enough. And this does not, uh, you know, encourage them to do more. So we have to own some of these pieces. Yeah. But then the other is the dynamic. This is how you communicate between the two of you, how you talk about it. And there is a lot to say about that piece. I actually, I'm hoping this is okay to mention, I have a free guide on talking to your partner about the mental load because I just feel so strongly that I want to equip people to have this conversation. So it talks about how do you bring it up? How do you describe it? And then if they're defensive, what do you do and give scripts? So I would encourage people to check that out. But I think one of the most beneficial things you can do that hopefully will also move the needle in terms of your sex life and things like that is to regularly schedule check-ins around the mental load. The mental load is constantly changing. It's always in flux. Our schedule, like my husband, for example, travels almost every single week. And so we're regularly talking about, you know, well, you're gone, so I'll take care of this. When you come home, I'm going to need with this. And so we're always making these adjustments. And so getting in the habit of touching base weekly, what's going on, what's on our plates, what can you do, what can I do, where do you need support, where do I need support, really can go a long way into feeling like you're actually on a team sort of against the mental load versus one person's carrying it and the other person is not pulling their weight. Mm -hmm. And there's a side benefit to this regular meeting, which is that we tend to approach our relationships where we only talk about our relationship when we're upset about something. And so then we, a lot of times, either avoid talking about relationship stuff or both partners' defenses really get raised when we're like, can we talk about something? And they're like, what now? What did I do? Mm -hmm. And so it starts to break down that myth. It starts to normalize this idea that, listen, you know, we got to regularly talk about our relationship and what's going on. And so that is a side benefit uh, that I think a lot of couples would would be good for a lot of couples. I have to co-sign that because, and to give Jeff a little bit of props here, because he he has like, you know, changed a lot in this area mm -hmm. since we had kids. I'm a talker and I'm a sort of overanalyzer and I talk about things a lot. And so when I started talking about the mental load, when I started talking about my mental health with him, I feel like in the earlier parts of my marriage, even though he knew me well enough to know that, you know, I had mental health stuff in my whole life. But I also like in the earlier parts of our marriage, like tried to to be more perfect for him or something. Perfect mm -hmm. might be yeah. too strong of a word, but you know what I mean? Like I always wanted to be like best self all the time. When I started to get more real, which happened inevitably after kids where I had to just like be more candid about what I was struggling mm -hmm. with or what was going on with me, the more that I did that you know, in the beginning, maybe he was resistant to certain things I was saying, or he was eye-rolly to certain things or whatever. But over time, he either really did see it or started to hear me better or whatever. It really did take a lot of time. And I feel like you can't just like have that conversation once, like that mental load conversation once. And if they don't get it or they're resistant to it, you can't just be like, well, give up. That it really is something to like bring up over and over again, not in a naggy way or like I like how you make it like a, a weekly check in or a, a part of your relationship, because I, I know at least in my partnership, it it took a while for him to get it. Mm -hmm. And but he did get it. He's made big strides, as have I, in sort of understanding his take on it or his role. It's not it wasn't always me like complaining and then him acquiescing. That was not it. It was a true conversation. 
Yeah, I like that you bring this up because I think that a lot of women approach the conversation, it doesn't go well, and then they just shove it down. Yeah. And um, that's why I created the guide because I think there are three main roadblocks that we hit in the conversation. Either it's defensiveness, it's mindset around what mental load even means and what things should look like or our role expectations. And so sometimes we need to really start chipping away at some of these things to even really get to a place where we're then talking about the distribution of responsibilities. You know, it's like, well, first we got to get on the same page, then we can get to that next step. And so I was hoping to equip women specifically to, you know, really be able to persevere through these conversations when they get really challenging. And I think to something. So my first book actually isn't, you know, I know you're not saying this, but it's not about the mental load. I, I will have a book on the mental load coming out. That's my next book. Um, but but what my book does cover that I think is really important is challenging some of the mindset issues that I think get in the way of um, women feeling entitled, like a, like a healthy sense of entitlement to have this conversation. Mm. I think a lot of us have these internalized messages that are like, oh, we shouldn't really need to ask for help or, or I'm a stay-at-home mom and so I guess this is my job. I shouldn't really need to, you know, shouldn't need to do these things or involve my partner. I don't want to put them out. I don't want to be an inconvenience. We have all these messages we've absorbed throughout our lifetime that get in the way of us even having this conversation. And so I'm hoping in the first book, it helps women feel uh, that healthy sense, I mean, entitlement is such a yucky word, but a healthy sense of it, you know, a reasonable sense of it to enter into these conversations so they feel uh, empowered to do that and like it's an okay conversation to have. Yeah, totally. And because this book that's out now is called Love Your Kids Without Losing Yourself, I do want to talk about the piece that caring for yourself without neglecting your kids' needs because in all of this, you know, what's become very popular to talk about self-care and things like that, which is I'm, I'm glad that women are talking about that more openly. Mm-hmm. But I do think that one of the immediate obstacles when you talk about taking care of yourself is, well, but my kids need this or it back to self-worth or, or identity in your parenthood or there's like a the self-sacrifice is part of the deal. I think sometimes yeah. we think that or we we think rightly or wrongly depending on the situation that our kids needs do trump ours which might be true in the immediate moment but in the big picture is so detrimental i don't know if you want to speak about that part because i do think that that is a really common obstacle to the self care movement it is it really is and i i think yeah I have a lot to say on this. So I, I think part of a part of understanding this is understanding that there's just a tension that women specifically really experience in our relationships, which is this strong pull to self-sacrifice for the preservation of our relationships. We learn this by just existing in the culture that we exist in, by the frameworks that we live out our lives in, by the messages we get um, from our early caregivers. We sort of absorb this. And so it's, it's, we're going to be pulled in that direction anyway. I am a believer that that's not really a terrible thing. I, I, I think it's like a lovely part of women is that how we're, we're kind of collectivists. You know, we're really the glue that holds our relationships together. Here's the rub. When we self-sacrifice 
so much to the point where we become bitter, burned out, and resentful, and grumpy, and snappy, and irritable in our relationships, we are just, like, our tactics are backfiring. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're trying to back burner ourselves for the relationships we care about most, but then we end up showing up in the relationships we care about most as our worst selves and selves that we don't really feel good about. And I think that's what happens to a lot of moms is that, we are spread so thin. And so we're like, well, the easiest thing to let go is me. So I let that go and I don't make myself small and I take care of everybody else. And now I'm grumpy and I'm yelling at my kids and I didn't think I'd be this type of mom. I don't recognize myself anymore. I don't like who I am. And then we engage in this negative self-concept, this negative self-talk, which drains us even further. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think I get kind of annoyed at some of the cliches, like, you know, mom, put your oxygen mask on first. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not how life works. This is not like a staged thing. This is, you know, we don't really need to go first. But we just need a turn. That's what I think. I think moms just need a turn. And, and part of it is sometimes, you know, I want to normalize that sometimes our kids will come first. Those early years of motherhood, yeah, you know, we got to keep these babies alive. It makes sense to back burner our needs, but we need to stay in touch with ourselves enough to recognize when it's going too far, mm -hmm. when we need to tip the scales a little bit. We need to turn the dials and we need to start doing some things to replenish ourselves. And so I think it's like this regular give and take between all of our relationships. Sometimes our relationship with our kids is prioritized and we're lost in it. And then it's like, well, I got to recalibrate. This is too much. So then it becomes a little bit about me or maybe it's your partnership. But, you know, all of these relationships are integrated. They work together. They don't need to have a specific order on which comes first. But we do need to stay in touch with them so that we can recognize when we need to make some adjustments. Yeah. Yes to all of that. <laughs> well, I'm so excited for your book. Can you tell the listeners where they can find it, where they can follow you, where they can get that free guide? Everybody, I will link all of this in the show notes as I always do. So you don't need to worry about memorizing it, but do tell us where we can find yeah. all the things. You can find everything on my website, which is drmorgancutlip.com. You'll find right in the header, the link to get my book as well as the link to get these free gifts. They're both in the header. And you can buy my book anywhere books are bought. Amazon, Target, Barnes & Noble, your indie bookstores. And also you can learn more about me on Instagram, which is drmorgancutlip. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, I loved this conversation so much. Y'all, the book is called Love Your Kids Without Losing Yourself, Five Steps to Banish Guilt and Beat Burnout When You Already Have Too Much to Do. We'll link again, like I said, we'll link everything in the show notes. And I loved this conversation. Thank you for me being too. here. Thank you so much. You've just listened to an episode of the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. For show notes and links, go to 10thingstotellyou.com. Make sure you're following us on Facebook and Instagram at 10 Things to Tell You. And you can also join our free connection group on Facebook to discuss episodes and topics. For bonus content, ad-free episodes, and monthly Zoom gatherings with me, join my Secret Stuff Patreon community by going to 10thingstotellyou.com slash secret stuff. Thanks for listening. 